good times. These guys have been here since 7 o'clock this morning. They still look fresh as a daisy. Which is, a, which is a plug. Like, if you're interested, if you're an early bird, 8.30 service. Aaron, you're awesome. Thank you. Look at that. Okay. Uh, 8.30 service. You can come, you know, there's love to have you come and help. Let's help but kind of build that service up and make room for some more new people. But if you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, I'm going to be there in a minute. I got a funny story, though, yesterday. Yes? Oh, we need to dismiss the kids? Thanks, sweetie pie. I'm being reminded by my daughter to dismiss the kids. So the kids, uh, the preschool age kids, right? Both? All the kids. I'm getting this wrong all the, all the way around. So just kids, just, just, just go. Just go. Have a, <laughs> have a great time. So last Sunday, well... Yeah. Last Sunday, David Lemoyne gave a powerful message on, on brokenness. And by, by brokenness, we mean this, that we desperately and utterly know that we need God. That's what it means to be a broken person. A lot of people would admit that they need God. Like, that's, that's, not, that's not anything special. We all pretty much know we need God. But a broken person knows that they need God. See, a lot of people are broken, but not broken. In other words, we make this big mess out of our lives, and then we try to fix it, and that just makes another mess. And then we try to fix that, and that makes another mess. We try to fix that, that makes another mess. And, and we, we refuse to get broken. A broken person comes to the, has come to the place where the mess has reached such a size in their lives that they've come to the spot and they go, yeah, I can't fix this. This is beyond me. I need help. I can't do this on my own. Isn't that the first step in the 12-step program for alcoholics and drug addicts, right, is to, to come to the place where I recognize I can't fix this. I need help. That's a broken person. And I propose to you that that's absolutely where you and I need to be. That's where we experience life. You and I are the fish. God is the water. You get that? We need them. We got to have them. A broken person has reached this point where they're no longer self-sufficient, but they're God-sufficient. If you think about it like on a continuum... You have self-sufficient over here. It's all about me. I'm making it happen, man. Like I'm ducking and weaving and bobbing and doing it. And then over here is God-sufficient. If God doesn't show up, then we're all toast. All of us are somewhere on that continuum. Where are you at? Would you say that you're God-sufficient? I bet most of us probably would. Because, you know, you're fine Christian people. You say, oh, yeah, 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 I'm God-sufficient. I'm trusting. I've even memorized Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways. Acknowledge Him, and He will guide your paths. Great Bible verse. I have it as a bumper sticker, a poster. Like, yes, I trust God. Really? How do you know? 
Is there any evidence in your life that suggests that you're living by faith? Where in your life right now do you demonstrate that you're living by faith? Because it's hard to know that Jesus is my everything until I've lost everything else. But we don't ever let ourselves get to that point because we're so busy controlling it all. We insist on everything, having, everything being figured out. We insist on everything being buttoned down. And then we wonder why we don't experience God, why God feels far away. We run from mystery in order to embrace certainty, and we miss our destiny. You see, the Holy Spirit doesn't comfort us inside of my comfort zone. He comforts us outside of our... The, my, it's my comfort zone because it's exactly right. It's my comfort zone. This is what I am comfortable with. The Holy Spirit is the comforter. He comforts us outside of that. Instead, what we do is we create this little safe space for ourselves, and we insulate ourselves from this difficult stuff, and then we wonder why our experience with God is flat. In fact, can I be, please, I know it's a heavy way to start, isn't it? I was going to start with a joke, but I chose not to, so oh well. In fact, you know what happens is this. A lot of times what we call answered prayer, do you know what it really is? It's really just a manipulated solution of our own making. Yeah, I was praying, I was praying for God to provide a car. Oh, he, I've been praying he's going to provide a car. And how many years are those payments going to last? So I asked, did God really answer the prayer or did you just do it the way you wanted to do it? And then when it all falls apart, we get ourselves in trouble. Then we say, okay, that's faith. Oh, God, get me out. God, would you pay these bills? God, would you do this? Well, but I got myself into those bills. I got myself into that mess, whatever that mess is. I'm just saying that a lot of times we, 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 we rob ourselves of the ability to see God at work and to experience his presence because you only experience God-sized solutions when you have God-sized problems. And let's be honest, we work really hard to avoid God-sized problems. We literally manage our lives so carefully that we manage God right out of it. And we make no room for him. And that's why this morning's message is entitled, Make, Give God Something to Work With. Give them something to work with. You say, you argue, oh, God doesn't need anything to work with. And you're right. He doesn't need anything to work with. We don't give God something to work with for his benefit. We give God something to work with for our benefit. God wants to reveal himself to you. Giving God something to work with is about you and me enjoying the blessing of knowing God. It's like, I don't know, I like to say following Jesus is like playing basketball with LeBron James. He makes all the baskets, and I get to enjoy the trophy. I, 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 know, I, did, I know that I did nothing to win this game, <laughs> but the trophy's still mine. Sweet. 
But you know, we don't like that. We want to make sure that I've done something to earn that trophy. But God gives us the blessing of working with him. It's kind of like you say, well, let me illustrate it this way. It's Moses. Think of Moses standing in front of the Red Sea. And before him, he has daunting waters. Surrounding him are fearful and grumbling Israelites. Behind him are raging Egyptians. And God goes, hold out your stick, Moses. Now, I ask you, does God need Moses' stick to part the Red Sea? Not at all. God spoke the Red Sea into existence. I don't think he needs Moses' stick to split it. What do you think? Not at all. Why does God have Moses stick out the stick? Why? Because God wants Moses to have the privilege of participating in one of the most fantastic miracles in the history of the world. That's why God had him hold out a stick. Can you imagine Moses at the end of the day, at the end of that day? I'm guessing he was still just shaking from the, oh my goodness, what just happened here. You think so? He had, the, I mean, he had a front row seat. He's right there in the, just, and it was my stick. I mean, wow. Have you ever, what if God's got something like that in your life? You got to, it's just a stick. It's nothing. It's, I mean, it's nothing. What does God want to do with that stick? You think God might want to have the same thing for you? Like someday you're going, whoa, that was totally amazing because that was nothing. Ah, here's a little testimony, not on the notes. Though this morning after the first service I was talking, you know, you know Kay, many of you know Kay, she uh, comes to the first service and greets and she's a wonderful lady, part of our church. But you know that there was a day a number of years ago when she died? She's here today, as a, she's a miracle, literally a miracle. That day that, with the day that we were called in, to the hospital because she had gone septic. The doctor said there was nothing else we could do. She's gone. And all I did was ask the Lord, ask them if I could just pray for her. They were cleaning up the room. They were, she was gone. I touched her foot. That's all I did. And the machines began to buzz and whir, and, and the doctor's eyes went, Phew. and I put my arm around the doctor, and I said, listen, this lady is not going to die today. You do your part, and I'll do my part, and we'll get through this. And they began to work on her for the next several hours. He came out. I sat in the hallway. Elaine Shemensky joined me. Elaine came in. The first word that she said when she came in was, today, is this is not going to end in death. That was her word. This is not going to end in death. And we said, yeah, I, I'm with you. And we started to pray together for the next several hours. And the doctor came out repeatedly, three, four times. And he would say, well, she probably has air bubbles on her spine, and that's going to kill her. And, but I'll go check. And he went and checked, no air bubbles. Well, she's probably brain dead, because people have that, and not brain dead. And he, one thing after the other, the Lord's just like, boom, 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 boom. And now the lady's serving him faithfully here at church, and she's a wonderful lady, right? You understand? You understand there's no room for pride when God's at work. Because you know it ain't you. It's, it's not New River Church. It's not me. It's not Elaine. It's not the doctors. God raised Kay from the dead that day. 
with something as simple as a touch on the foot. That's what I'm saying. It's just a stick, but you put it in the hand of God. You know it's not you. It's him. And God wants you and me to have those kinds of opportunities and privileges over and over and over and over again to get a front row seat at him at work. But I'm telling you, we don't get that if we live our lives completely managed and controlled. First, I have to be coaxed out of my comfort zone. And I have to learn this very important lesson, that I'm saved by faith. How many of you believe that? You believe you're saved by faith? Come on, good Christian people, you know you believe that. You're saved by faith. That's like a doctrine 101. You're saved by faith. Anybody believe that? Yeah. Okay, but are you living by it? Look at if you've depended, if you've trusted your entire eternity on the promise of God, can you trust your daily experience to him as well? I mean, I'm betting my entire eternity on the promise of God, on this. I'm literally betting my entire eternity on the promises of God that he paid for my sins and makes me right with himself. Can I trust him for anything else? That's what we're talking today. So we're getting back into our series in the study of Romans. And we're going to be at Romans chapter 4 today. Uh, we started this series of study back in the fall. And um, we uh, ran out of time because we hit Thanksgiving and then Christmas happened. And then we built up in January to, uh, to our Covenant Sunday last Sunday. Which, by the way, the covenant is there. If you didn't get to sign it, would encourage you to do so. It's on the welcome table. But uh, so now we get to come back into Romans, and I'm excited about it, and we're back to Romans chapter 4, and I would say this, that if you want a refresher, you can listen to the messages. We have four messages from the first three chapters of Romans, and you might want to go back and listen to those on the church website or catch the podcast. That'd be awesome. Uh, but in short, here's what it is. The first three chapters of Romans really summed up, say this that all of us are sinners, all of us need a Savior, and that Jesus is that Savior. And you're saved when you put your faith in Jesus to save you. That's Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. Romans chapter 1 is, well, the, the worldly people are really bad. Romans chapter 2 are nice, clean-cut, churched, religious people are bad. Romans chapter 3 is, we're all bad. And then it comes to Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the summary of it. And the only solution here is faith in Jesus Christ. And now that brings up a question. What's faith? What does that mean to place my faith in Jesus? And that brings you to Romans chapter 4. The Apostle Paul chooses an example from history, probably the most premier example of what faith is, the man Abraham. Abraham is like the king of faith. You agree? Um, even if you don't, it's the one Paul used, so it's the one we got to go with. But Romans chapter 4 uses Abraham as an example of what faith looks like. And uh, just a heads up, we're going to take a few weeks on this. Faith is an important topic. 
faith is one of those things that we really do need to understand because a lot of times what we call faith is really just wishful thinking. Um, faith is not me and you getting God to do what we want him to do. Faith is God has made a promise. God has said something. I'm believing that, despite the fact that my circumstances might say otherwise. That's faith. So we need to understand what this is and what this looks like. And so we're going to take a couple weeks to dive into it. But today, Romans chapter 4, I'll start with verse 1. It says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? What's the this matter? What, what is the this matter he's talking about? Well, that's chapter 3, verse 28. This matter is this. Verse 28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. In other words, it's not just being a good person that gets you to heaven. It's faith in Jesus Christ that gets you to heaven. And that's the this matter that chapter, that verse 1 is talking about. And he says, here's, here's what Abraham can teach us about this issue. That it's not just being a good person that gets you there, but it's your faith that gets you there. Verse 2, if in fact Abraham was justified by works... Well, he had something to boast about, but not before God. Not before God. You, you know, how many of you know God's not impressed with your good works? You know that, right? That whatever it was you put in the offering plate this morning, thank you, praise the Lord. But God wasn't up in heaven this morning going, oh, whew, I am so glad they gave that today. Whew. Boy, Peter, I don't know how we were going to make it work, but thank the Lord. Right? Thank myself. They, they put that in the plate. God's not like, wow, you're so generous. God doesn't do that. Your good works don't impress God. They impress each other. We impress one another. I think you're cool. The stuff you do, I think, is really awesome. But God says, you know, I, I, um, you know that breath in your lungs that you use to get that done? I gave you that breath. Like everything we have has come from him. So he doesn't get impressed by our good works. That's why it's so important, my friends, to give him your heart. Because your heart is the one thing in the universe that God doesn't automatically already have. He's created it that way. He gave you... He gave you an ability to choose. He gave you a will. And he did that on purpose. He wants you to choose him. So giving him your heart is awesome. He loves that. But, but your great works, he already gave you that ability. Anyway, that wasn't in the notes. But chapter 4, we come to verse 3. What does the scripture say? So Abraham he, if he was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not really. Verse 3, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So that means that Abraham believed, he, he, he agreed with God, he had faith, and then God gave him a credit of righteousness. Do you know what a, a credit means? So I have, uh, I have uh, the Starbucks app on my phone. And at Christmas time, I got some money. I got some gift cards for Starbucks. And so I put those on my phone. You know what that means? I have a credit at Starbucks. 
Let's say I got $20 worth of gift cards, let's say, 20 bucks. And so that means I have a credit of $20 at Starbucks. So I can't show up to Starbucks one day and they say, oh, that was your $20? Oh, yeah, we gave that to somebody else. No, that's my money on their account. It's credited to me, that much money. When it says that God credited righteousness to him, did that mean that Abraham was just this perfect, holy dude? Floating across the desert, never sinned again. No, he was far from righteous in the way that he behaved. I mean, he was a pretty rough and tumble guy, pretty basic dude. But yet, his, for him, righteousness was a credit. It was placed on his account in heaven. And the same is true for you and me. You are just as righteous as Jesus. But not because you're such a perfect person. Because if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, he has credited righteousness to you. It's on your account. So when God looks at you, he goes, yeah, you are righteous. He sees Jesus. It's a credit. And that comes from faith. It doesn't come because you're so good. That's the point that he's making. And now he goes to verse 5. Verse 4, now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. That makes sense. If I do a job for you, you owe me money. This is why good works don't work, because God doesn't owe you anything. The person who says, I, I've done good works, I'm a good person, that's why God has to let me into heaven. Really? You want to say that? You, you think the God of the universe is somehow indebted to you? Like you did him a favor and now he owes you by letting you into heaven? Not true at all. Verse 5. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. The same thing is true for you and me. And now he uses this example of David. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness. You notice this concept, this crediting concept? It's mentioned four times in these 12 verses. Four times. So the man credit, God credits at righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Boy, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Blessed is the man, the woman, whose sin God will never count against them. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Because my sin is not held against me. But not because I'm a good guy not held against me because I've placed my faith in that promise. Are you following this? Now verse 9, he comes, he comes and he begins to ask, a, he answers a question. Verse 9 says this, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Now just stop for a second. Remember when we began this study, we learned that there was a conflict brewing in the church of Rome. And that's what prompted Paul to write this letter. And the conflict was a racial conflict between Jew and Gentile. 
And, and so they were fighting one another. They were not getting along. It was coming to a head. And Paul is resolving this conflict with this message of the gospel. The message is simply, you're all losers and you all need a savior. That's, that's the Doug Rouse paraphrase version, but that's really what he's doing. You're all losers and you all need a savior and Jesus is the savior, so get along, right? Jesus is our common bond. None of us is better than the other, so let's get over that. And now, so Paul is addressing that conflict. So in, the, in this church, you have the Jews who were the circumcised, who were, if I update the language a little bit, they were the clean-cut church people. And then you have the Gentiles who were, oh, they were coming in kind of dirty and rough and tumble, and they would be the uncircumcised. And so his question here is this, now is this blessedness for being forgiven, to being made right with God? Is this gift, is it only for the circumcised or is it also for the uncircumcised? Is being made right with God only for nice, clean-cut church people or is it also for the dirty, rough-and-tumble pagans? That's the question that he's asking. Um, and he answers the question, ready? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Now, under what circumstances, verse 10, under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before he was circumcised? And Paul says it was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he's the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. If you look at the scripture verses behind me, the two different passages from the book of Genesis, you discover, you see this, what he's, you see this point that Paul's making. Abraham, in Genesis chapter 15, God comes to Abraham and makes a promise to him. And the Bible tells us that Abraham believed God, and then it was, here's that word again, credited to him as righteousness. If you do the time, it was 10, 15 years later when Abraham got circumcised. So Abraham was made right with God before he was circumcised. In other words, he was made right with God because he believed in God not because he was such a good guy. That's the bottom line. And his question for you and me is the, exactly the same. You're not on your way to heaven because you're a good person. You're on your way to heaven because you've received Jesus as your Savior by faith. That's his point. Does that make sense? You're not righteous because you came to church today or because you're such a good person. You're righteous because you believe God's promise when he said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You believe that promise. And that's what makes you righteous. I'm trying to make this as crystal clear as possible. You're, Romans chapter 4, verse 12, then, it says this. And then Abraham is also the father of the circumcised 
who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So having good works and being a good person, hey, that's not a bad thing. That's what he's saying. It's just you understand you're not right with God because of those things. You're right with God because of your faith. Clear? Have we made this clear? I hope so. You got, same as the first service. You guys are all looking at me. I don't know what it is. We just need more coffee or something. Paul's point is this. Good works don't work. It's kind of like we say in West Virginia. You know what you call a dog with no legs? You call it anything you want. It ain't coming. Listen, good. Some of you dog lovers are horrified. Fido with no legs. Oh, no. I'm not saying I cut him off. I'm just saying he has no legs. Anyway, so... The point is this, you stop now. Okay, I'm stopping. Good, the point is, good works don't work for two reasons. Number one is this, nobody gets to heaven, nobody gets to heaven because God owed them something. That's the first reason. And the second reason why good works don't work is there's nobody in heaven who's better than somebody else. It's not like Billy Graham and Mother Teresa are up there with their big truckload of crowns bragging on everybody. That's not, what, that's not how it works. Everybody is there because they crossed the exact same bridge. Jesus. He died for our sins, and we believed that. We've trusted in that. We've bet on that. That's why we're there. If you think about it, that's actually the fairest way for God to solve our problem. Because everybody in heaven has arrived there the exact same way. You're not standing there because you're Catholic. You're not standing there because you're part of New River Church. You're not standing there because you were a pastor, because you taught Sunday school. You're not there because of whatever. We're all there for one. There's only one hero in this whole story, and his name is Jesus. And we celebrated him in communion this morning. That's now, friends, that's why. And this is huge. We stand, I stand here today as a child of God, not because I'm a good guy, but because I believed in his promise. Think about it. We've literally bet our eternity on this promise that we read in the Bible. On what are you betting your eternity? See, I hear people that say, Oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I'm also a good person. What are you doing? As though you got a backup plan? <laughs> you, you recognize that this is the reason why, this is the reason why deathbed conversions, are, they work. You could be, the truth is, you can be the worst human being in the history of the world and in your last breath cry out to God, for forgiveness and receive Jesus by faith and you would wake up in heaven. Why? Because we're not saved by good works. Saved by faith. That, that my friends, believing God's promise is all we have to offer, is, is all, is, I mean, it's all we got. That's what it comes down to. What else is it? How does it look? Hebrews 11, if you go to Hebrews 11, verses 11 and 12, it's just another way to see this. 
to maybe make, a, make the point stronger. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 11 and 12, it says this, By faith, by faith, Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself was barren, was able to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so, from this one man, and, and he is good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Do you see that? Do you see how the odds were stacked against Abraham? Totally stacked against him. That's added up. He's an old man. His wife is barren, past age. And I love that line, as good as dead. I mean, you're saying, that fat lady had already sung. They closed up the building. The lights were turned off. Like, the game was over, man. You got the janitor finished cleaning. Like, it's over. It's over. He's as good as dead. And yet, somehow, he became a father to many with descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. How did that happen? It tells you how it happened. Abraham considered him faithful. You see that in the scripture? Abraham considered God faithful who had made the promise. That's how it happened. Abraham believed the promise of God. And I say to you and to me that that's exactly how you and I live as well. The odds are always stacked against it. But friends, God made a promise, and I'm hanging on that. And I believe more in what God has said than what my circumstances say. And faith is not getting, not me getting God to do something that I want him to do. No, 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 no. Faith is me responding to what God has said. And now I trust in that, and I'm waiting on that, and I'm hanging on it. And if God doesn't come through, then it's not going to happen. Because I'm waiting on God to fulfill his promise. He's going to deliver. He's going to deliver. But you know what most of us do? Is we, in the name of Jesus, we run our own lives. And we, we cleverly put Bible verses on them. And we justify how are we doing it? And then when we get into trouble, then we have faith in God to bail us out of trouble. But that's not faith. That's presumption. Living by faith, it works the same way as being saved by faith. I believe God's promise. And I remain faithful to him, and I wait for him to deliver on that promise. Friends, if you can bet your entire eternity on God's promise, can you trust him with lesser things? Can you? Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, it puts it this way. It says, are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you trying to attain your goal by human effort? See, a lot of us kind of have this idea that, well, I start out by faith, but then the rest is up to me. We, we believe this lie that says, I do everything I can. Follow this. Is this, is this how you think? I, I do everything I can. And then God fills in the rest. How does that work? Boy, is that stressful. 
my question to you this morning is where in your life right now are you demonstrating faith? You're saved by faith, yes. Are you living by it? So let me meddle a little bit. I'll throw out a couple of uh, couple of couple of uh, scenarios for you. And maybe this is one of yours, maybe not. Maybe you've got something else, but at least let you know what I'm thinking, where we're going. How about this? You're single. Single people, you want to get married. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. Can you trust God to provide a godly spouse for you? Or do you have to take matters into your own hands in order to impress others and compromise on your own convictions in order to make it happen? See what I mean? Are you living by faith? Or are you just making it work on your own and calling it Jesus? Because I'm telling you, that doesn't work. Uh, I picked on a car earlier. I'll pick on it again. You need a new car. Okay, great. It's a good thing. Can God provide that? Or do you have to drive yourself into debt like everybody else in order to get it? See, can we wait on him for provision? Can we? What does it look like to exercise faith in this area? That's what I'm talking about. It's nitty-gritty. Like, we're talking about living by faith. Where in your life does it, where in life are you demonstrating that you're living by faith? Christian parents, you, you want your children to grow up to be godly young men and women, and certainly we do. It's a dream of every Christian parent. We want them to, um, but then they do things that scare you and make you think, oh, that's not going to happen. My kid's going to, right? Can I ask you, does God love them more than you do? And is God more committed to his purposes in their life than you are? Or do you have to manipulate, use guilt, use religion, use little speeches to steer them and make them get there? I'm not saying that you abdicate your responsibility as a godly parent. You've got a responsibility. You understand the difference? Are they in God's hands or yours? Come on. At some point, I've got to believe that he's got this and he cares more about them than I do. I'm just asking again, where in your life right now are you demonstrating faith? If you've trusted Jesus with your eternity, if you've bet your entire eternity on this promise of God, surely you can trust him for lesser things in your day-to-day life. Our culture has kind of conditioned us to not live by faith. And even in church, your church friends might think you're a little cuckoo if you're actually taking this seriously. They'll think you're off your rocker, but... Friends, let me just circle back. I'll close with this. Circle back to to Romans chapter 4. So in Romans chapter 4, the issue was you've got these clean-cut... Jewish people and and they are saying well yes I believe God but I'm also a really good person and Paul is saying 
you got to let that second part go. It's only by faith. So I want to know this morning um, how many of us would say the same thing. That, uh, yeah, I believe in God, but I'm also a... The challenge to us today is to let go of that but. Because at the end of the day, all you have and all I have is Jesus and the promise that he made to me. Nothing else I have is, is it impresses God. There's, there's no other way. And if I've bet my eternity on Jesus, then I can surely trust him for lesser things in my day-to-day life. And that gets demonstrated. It gets demonstrated practically. So we're going to bow our heads. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Lord God, we... Uh, Father, I guess first I want to say that I'm sorry because I've kind of, in many ways, I've managed you right out of my life, and uh, I don't want to do that. And um, so, friends, with your heads bowed here in this moment of prayer, I want to invite you to just do one thing. Would you think through your life, all the different aspects of your life? Can you make room for God somewhere in there? I feel like there's got to be at least a, a step one in this process of learning to live this life of faith, and this would be step one. So is there anything there in your life where you can say okay god i'm i'm not gonna i'm purposefully not gonna manage that i'm purposefully not gonna control and manipulate that i'm gonna let that in your hands and let that in your timing father um i just uh, thank you for your faithfulness to us and i pray that you would have your way in us, that we would be a men, that we would be men and women who, um, who aren't just saved by faith, but who live by it as well. And we, um, we thank you for this word. I pray, Holy Spirit, drive it deep into our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name.